Amen. If you have a Bible, go to John 13. John 13. I hope you caught in the music the participation of our students. Actually, through the whole service, Brittany baptized because she believes in Christ. Um, Shelby, where are you? Shelby led us through the song Oceans. Molly praying for us before the offering. <clears throat> students up here singing. Uh, I love the fact that we have young people participating in worship, being active in, in serving God. John Fletcher has, has a saying that I like. He, he, he says that a lot of times people say, well, the young people are the future of our church. <clears throat> and John says, no, that's, that's not true. Uh, the young people are the present of our church, that you guys are actively today worshiping Jesus, actively serving him. And just as your pastor to the students, I just want to say thank you. I love you guys. I appreciate you. And we as old folks are behind you. And we want to encourage you and help you. Amen? Amen. So don't forget to take one of those yellow armbands as well and pray for our students as they go into the Disciple Now weekend in the coming days. Can you believe that spring break is just around the corner? It's already time to start thinking about summer. Uh, How many of you guys are planning a trip for summer vacation this year? Well, I have three kids, six and under, so we don't get to travel that much, so I have to live vicariously through you. So my only request is that for those of you that are going to really cool places this summer, please poke holes in the luggage so that this year when I stow away in your luggage that I'll actually be able to breathe. I mean, last year you guys didn't do that, and it made it quite hard. But uh, I want to talk to you about a trip that we all go on. It's called a ego trip. And ego trip's are fueled by pride. Pride's an interesting word because you cannot say the word pride without saying I, and you cannot say the word pride without saying the word ride. Most of us ride pride through the streets of life. Now, pride is also interesting because it can carry two very different meanings. On one hand, pride can be a very positive word. A father is proud of his son who is returning from serving his country in battle, and he says to his son, Son, I am proud of you. It conveys love. It conveys admiration for his son. And yet at the same time, pride can have a negative connotation because pride can be associated with having too much self-esteem vanity, egotism. And when we start riding that negative pride, it is destructive to our soul. Now, often whenever we think of prideful people, imagine in your mind a prideful person, okay? Often when we think of a prideful person, we think of somebody who is loud, somebody who is obnoxious. Hey, look at me! And they're just kind of just going crazy. But pride can really affect any personality type. You may be the happy otter, but you can suffer from pride. You may be a strong lion, and you like to get people out of your way and get the job done, and you can suffer from pride. You might be that busy beaver, and you think, well, I never deal with pride. I just keep my head down and do my work. But even in that busy beaver type, 
personality, you can suffer from pride. You might be the golden retriever, and you are faithful, and you are always there for the people that you love. You try to be a stabilizer in life, and yet at the same time, you can find yourself in the grip of pride. Because pride goes way, way, way back. In fact, even before the Garden of Eden, Satan dealt with pride. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's a passage that many scholars believe deals with the fall of Satan. And these are the words of Satan. I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars, I, I will, the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north, I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now notice Satan's favorite words in that passage. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times he says, I will. And then at the end of each of those is he's going to elevate himself to a position that rightfully belongs to God. That's where the ride of pride takes us. It always leads us to elevate ourselves to a position that rightfully belongs to God. You remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempts Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit, and he tells her, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. He was trying to get her to succumb to that pride and put herself in a position that belongs to God. Now, the Apostle Peter was a good guy. In fact, other than Jesus, Peter is probably my favorite character in the entire New Testament. He was always saying something. He was always involved in the action. And sometimes Peter got caught up in pride. You remember the story of the upper room? When Jesus gathers his disciples there in the upper room and they eat the Passover feast, we're going to be in that scene today. Well, one of the things that was happening in that upper room scene, we don't talk about it that much, but one of the things that Luke tells us is that the disciples actually were arguing over who was going to have the corner office and who was going to have the biggest limo in the kingdom of God. There in the upper room, Jesus is pouring out his heart to the disciples, preparing for the cross. And one of the things that the 12 disciples are discussing is who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to have the biggest benefit package in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus gives them an object lesson. He shows them what true greatness looks like. Look at John chapter 13 and verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Now notice verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So, because you have have verse 3, and then you have that word, so. Because Jesus knew that the Father had given everything to him, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God, he got up from the supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. 
Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Now, several things I want you to notice here. First of all, it's the Passover feast. This was a major occasion, a very, very special occasion in the Jewish holiday. Probably similar in significance to our own Christmas holiday. It was a time where people traveled. 2.5 million people would travel to the holy city of Jerusalem. There was a, a meal that was associated with the Passover festival, the Passover feast. So it was a major holiday in their schedule. Now, one thing that you did for a special occasion in ancient days is you took a bath. You took a bath. Now, hopefully all you guys took a bath before church today, but back in the ancient days, they didn't bathe nearly as much. But when there was a special occasion, you would bathe. And so before they took of the Passover feast, they wanted to make sure that they had been purified. But one of the difficulties was that as they walked along those dusty roads, their feet would get dirty. And so as they came into the home to partake in the Passover feast, in particularly in wealthy homes, there would be a doulos. Now, the doulos was a rookie slave. He was the one who was just starting out his indentured servanthood, his term of service. He was the one that had no seniority, that got the short end of the straw. And so the doulos was given the job. When the guest would come into the home, he had to wash their smelly feet. It wasn't a pleasant job. So picture the scene. Judas has already decided in his heart that he's going to betray Jesus. He's at the table. The disciples enter into the upper room, and they are riding the ride of pride. They are on an ego trip. Which of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus takes the water basin and the towel and begins washing their feet. Jesus, the one who came from God, the one who was returning to God, Jesus, the one in whom all things have been given, the one who truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's the one doing the work of the lowliest slave and washing their feet. A powerful lesson on what true servant leadership looks like. A powerful lesson on what humility looks like. Now here's a raw question for you. Why are we so prideful? Why are we so prideful? You say, well, pastor, it's kind of like Willie Nelson said, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You guys heard about the man that wrote the book, The Ten Most Humble People in the World, and how I met the other nine. You know, sometimes in life, it's a little bit difficult to be humble. Often I think I am prideful because deep down inside, I'm afraid of somebody being better than me. Or I'm afraid that somebody's going to take what I have. Or I'm afraid that somebody's going to expose me for who I really am. And when those fears begin to take root in our soul, when we're afraid of being exposed, of having something taken from us, uh, somebody being better than we are, we will throw up that wall of pride in order to keep out 
invaders. Jesus, though, knew who he was. He knew where he came from, where he was going, why he was here. He knew who he was, and because of that, remember verse 3, so, verse 4, he was able to be humble. Pride comes early, and it stays late. When you wake up in the morning, pride is brewing you a cup of coffee. Whenever you go to bed at night, pride is there willing to tuck you in. Pride is a forerunner of all sins. In many ways, pride is the opposite of faith. Think about that for a second. In many ways, pride is the opposite of faith. When the police are trying to subdue a criminal, and that criminal is being a little bit feisty, one of the things that the police can do is they can take out pepper spray and spray it in the criminal's eyes. Anybody ever been pepper sprayed by the police? Oh, come on. I got a couple back here. Yeah, some honest people. You guys are a bunch of goody two-shoes, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Paul Reed's been sprayed many times by the police along the way. But whenever you're pepper sprayed, and I'm not talking from personal experience on this, but whenever you are pepper sprayed, it creates within you fear, anxiety, naturally pain. But one of the things that pepper spray will do is it will cause the eyes to clamp down shut, and you can't see very, you can't see at all hardly whenever you've been pepper sprayed. Well, that's what pride does to us. It causes our eyes to clamp down. It, it blinds us to its own presence. We, we don't necessarily even realize that we are being prideful. Pride causes us to rationalize. And if you think about it, rationalize is a rational lie. We say things like, I'm not prideful. I'm just confident. I'm not angry. I'm just emotional right now. I'm not lustful. I'm just a red-blooded American. I'm not greedy. I just want what's mine. I'm not gluttonous. I just like good old southern cooking. The ride of pride. It entices you with that new car smell. It has a soft ride, but it quickly takes you away from God. Pride blinds me of my need to worship. Whenever I've caught in the grip of pride, I start thinking that all of life is all about me. Pride is all about my schedule, my timing. Pride is all about my needs, my plans. Whenever I'm caught in that grip of pride, it's hard for me to worship because instead of seeing my life revolving around God, I actually start seeing God revolving around me. I think God exists for me. He is my personal genie that does whatever uh, I desire him to do because I am the center of the universe. When we're caught in that grip of pride and we gather for worship, it's hard to just give yourself up and sing praises to God. It's hard to truly connect with God. We open the word of God and you feel cold because instead of God speaking to you, instead of you seeing your life existing for him, you're waiting for everybody else to serve you. It's easy for us to become like the people of Haggai's time. Haggai the prophet, he looked around and the people had started building the temple when they returned to Judah. Yet they didn't finish it. And the scriptures say they got so busy building their own houses and collecting nice things that they left the work of God undone. And that, that's what happens when we get caught in the grip of pride. 
We're so consumed with ourselves. We don't think about others. We don't think about God. We just think about ourselves and what I need. Pride blinds me from seeing God at work. One of the most tragic parts of the story of Jesus is the Pharisees who studied the Scriptures day and night, and yet they couldn't see God right in front of them. In fact, they thought that good was evil and evil was good. They could not see God right in front of them. And whenever we are caught by, uh, by pride, whenever we are in its hold, we don't see the work of God. All we see is the deficiencies. You can be a part of a church like this. This is an awesome church. How many of you guys know that Murphy Road Baptist Church is an awesome church? How many of you know that? Yeah, we can actually clap on that thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't badmouth my church. That's like badmouthing my wife, okay? You know, this is an awesome church. God is doing some incredible things here. I mean, we're far from perfect. I told the starting point group last week uh, during our starting point lunch, I said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up, okay? You know, we're far from perfect. We've got a long way to go. There's a lot of things that we need to improve in. There's a lot of, lot of stuff that God has yet for us to do. But this is an awesome church. The fingerprints of God are all over the place, and we are genuinely coming here seeking to have our lives changed by the power of the gospel. We open the word of God, and we look at it, and we let it challenge our hearts. We, we desire to be worshipers who are yielding our lives to God, who are experiencing salvation in our lives, who are becoming people of prayer who are realizing that worship is a driving function that leads into every other area of life. We're trying to create opportunities where believers can come together to grow in their understanding of the Word of God and to have relationships with people that are more than just sharing a room on Sundays, but you have true friendships within the congregation. We're trying to challenge you to realize that being a disciple is not just what you know, but it's also how you live, that to be a disciple, we are called to live like Jesus. And so, what we learn about Jesus and what we experience here, it overflows into our lives so that we as individuals, families, life groups, as a church, we are actively serving our community. We're trying to challenge ourselves to realize that people matter to God. And in his divine holiness, he has chosen to extend to us a grace that he loves us so much that he sends his son, and that because of all of this, we are changing to reflect the image of Christ around us. That's a lot of good. That's a work of God. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of, a place that is making much of God. Yet when we find ourselves in the grip of pride, we don't see any of that. When we find ourselves in the grip of pride, All we see is, you know, the coffee was cold in the Life Cafe today. Can't they heat it up? My kid has more fun at Disney World than he does at church. Of course your kid has more fun at Disney World than church. You know, I mean, you know, the sermon just talks too much about God. There's just too much scripture there. Of course we talk about God at church. When you're in the grip of pride, you miss the work of God. Well, in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So Jesus gets to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh. Right, Jesus, this isn't happening. 
So Jesus answered in verse 7, What I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. And I almost picture Jesus whispering this kind of quietly. Hey, Peter, what I'm doing, you don't understand it right now, but afterwards you'll understand it. Okay, let, let me wash your feet. Just trust me on this, Peter. Well, not Peter. In verse 8, he says, you will never wash my feet, ever, exclamation point. In other words, he gave Jesus up. Jesus, no, I'm not going to follow your plan here. You're not going to wash my feet. Now, you would think that Peter was a four-year-old and Jesus was trying to get him to eat his vegetables. It's like, no way. Uh-uh, not going to happen. You're not going to touch my feet. Now, notice Jesus' reply. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that's the key sentence to the entire scene. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't humble myself, if I don't do this for you, if I don't wash you and cleanse you, if I don't give myself for you, Peter, you cannot be mine. Peter, this evening, it's a towel and a water basin. Tomorrow, it's going to be the cross and the nails. I have to do something for you, Peter, that you cannot do for yourself. You see, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, he was illustrating to them what he was going to do for them on the cross. He was going to cleanse them. He was going to make them whole. He was going to do for them do for them something they could never do for themselves. I love Simon Peter's reaction in verse 9. He says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I mean, give the guy credit. He was hard-headed. He was objectionable. But whenever Jesus laid it out, he responded in faith. Jesus, I want to be yours. Wash me. Clean me. Clean the sin from my heart. Drain the pride from my life. I want to be yours. I want to identify with you. Now, earlier I said that often I am prideful because deep down I'm afraid that someone's better than me. I'm afraid that someone's going to take what I have, what I consider to be mine. I'm afraid that somebody's going to expose me for who I really am. I'm confident that I am not the only one that takes the ride of pride. We all do. But here's the antidote. The antidote to pride is the cross. Let me rewind that DVR. The antidote to pride is the cross. When I look upon the humility and love of the cross. It drains my pride. When I see the magnificence of his love for me, I have nothing left in which to boast. From the cross, the purity of righteousness shines into the corners of my heart and it exposes the darkness of my sin and it extends to me forgiveness and grace And contempt is poured upon my pride. It is from the cross that the glories of money, power, and fame, these things which we chase after and believe are the end goals of life, 
when I stare upon the cross, they lose their allure. And my richest gain I count, but lost. The antidote to pride is the cross. Last May, our illustrious discipleship minister, Paul Pack, and I found ourselves in a jam. Now, I realize I may have lost you already, but uh, we found ourselves in a jam. We were in the mountains, and we were trying to get in a quick hike before we had to come home, and so we were in the mountains, and it was snowing. It was 30 degrees outside. The sun was beginning to set. There was about two hours of daylight. Uh, It had been raining, so we were soaking wet. We were several miles from our car, and the temperature was dropping. Now, we were on this loop hike, and the path behind us had become barely passable. I mean, I was really struggling just to get up these hills because it was May in the mountains, and so the mountains were still covered with snow. So by the time we got up these hills, the path that we had already been, been on, we could not go back because uphill it was hard, downhill it was going to be absolutely impossible. We would probably fall off the side. So the only option we had was to continue going forward around this loop, and our car was two, three miles away. The sun was, was setting. I mean, we, we were in trouble. And to top it all off, my buddy Paul, he had worn a sweatshirt and shorts out hiking that day because everybody knows cotton is very water-repellent, right? So, so Paul never gets cold, but, you know, he was freezing uh, on that day. And he probably had about an hour and a half before severe hyperthermia set in. And I'm not exaggerating in any way. Rachel, I don't know that we told you the full story yet, but here you go. Uh, so uh, we're, we're continuing going. And we come to this gorge. And the ranger had told us about this gorge. He said, when you get to this gorge, there'll be a bridge there. And once you get over the bridge, the hike gets a lot easier and you should be able to navigate that really quickly. So we get to this gorge. There's the bridge. We're excited to be there. Only one problem, the bridge was gone. There there wasn't a bridge anymore. Uh, So all that's left is this rusty, ugly beam that goes across. And so here we are in a bit of a jam. (laughs) So we had a choice. Do I trust in the beam? Or do I say, "Uh uh-uh? I'm not going to trust in that beam. Ultimately, it was a trust. Do I li- it was a choice between living and dying. So you say, what did you do, Lash? Okay. Well, first of all, I prayed. All right, Lord, please help this beam to be sufficient. And then I put my faith in the beam. Now, I wasn't dumb. I said, Paul, you go first. And so Paul, you know, he just right across the beam, snow. I'm like, that guy's crazy. I'm riveting across like this, you know, across the beam like this, just hoping to make it to the other side. But I praise God that, that I lived, and then we made it back to the car before severe hypothermia set in, and we're alive today. Well, the ride of pride ends in one of two places. It either ends in death, or it ends at the cross. Between you and God, there is a gorge, and that gorge is filled with sin. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, for all fall short of the glory of God. 
but there is also a crossbeam. God has laid across the gorge his cross. And that crossbeam leads you to salvation. And when you come to that gorge of sin and you come to the realization, yes, Lord, I am prideful. Yes, Lord, I have done wrong. Yes, Lord, I am a sinner. You are ultimately faced with one of two choices. Do you die in your pride or do you trust in the crossbeam? Do you place your trust in that beam? Do you place your cross, trust in Jesus Christ? The scriptures call us to believe in Jesus. They don't call us to be perfect. They they don't call us to to be good enough for God to love us. They call us to believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is different than believing about Jesus. You can believe facts about God. You can say, I believe God exists. I, I believe that he was the creator of all. You can believe facts about Jesus, but believing in actually place your trust It drives you to place your trust in Jesus. You see, I could sit there and look at that beam and believe that it could have taken me across, but it wasn't until I actually got on the beam that I was putting my faith in it. And the same thing is true with Jesus Christ. The Scriptures call you to believe in Christ. And so if you're here today, and there's never been that time in your life where you've truly believed in Jesus That's what I hope for you today. That's what I pray for you today. That today can be your day of salvation. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and the band's going to lead us in song. And if you haven't ever taken that step of faith and believed in Christ, I'm going to be right here during that song. And I would invite you to come and see me and say, just like Brittany did a couple weeks ago, Pastor, I want to believe. I want to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And you can leave here having taken that first step of faith as a follower of Christ. Well, in that upper room, Jesus also instigated what we call the Lord's Supper. He passed the bread. He passed the wine. He told his disciples to eat and to drink. And he told them to remember him by taking that meal. And so followers for 2,000 years have been remembering Christ, remembering his love, remembering who he is by taking of the Lord's Supper. When we eat of the bread, we remember how Christ's body was broken for us on the cross. And when we drink of the wine, we remember how through the blood of Christ we have new life, we have forgiveness, we have grace through the blood of Christ. It's symbolic in nature but powerful in its effect because it reminds us We belong to Christ, that we're his. And so in this time of commitment, in just a few moments, the deacons are going to come and stand behind this table. There's two more at the back. If you're sitting towards the front, I would encourage you to come here. If you're sitting towards the back, go to one of those back stations. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper today. The deacons will hand you the bread. They will hand you the juice. You can take those, go back to your seat. There you might want to have a moment of prayer as an individual or as a family. And when you are ready, take and eat and take and drink, remembering Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to this beautiful time where we celebrate Jesus 
Father, I pray, I pray that you might shine the light of your righteousness into our hearts. And Lord, if there is rebellion within our spirit today, may we repent. Father, may we be right with you before we partake of this meal. And so, Lord, right now as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, some of us confess sin to you. And we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, for that fresh start. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful, Lord, that you have cleansed us. We thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you for Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the one that we worship. And so today, Lord, as we take of the bread and we take of the wine, Lord, we are mindful. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He is the one in whom we have life. And we identify with him today. I pray for that person that might be here today that needs to take that first step of faith. I pray that they might come see me. That today will be a day of salvation for them. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this moment. I pray, Father, that this might be a deep spiritual moment in our lives. As we renew our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you at this time to come and take of the Lord's Supper.